0: Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy.
1: Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. For this special edition of Dialogues, Best of VMX, we are conducting brief interviews with session directors from the most highly attended sessions at the 2021 VMX. To kick us off, we have Dr. Kristen Fernandez, who is Assistant Professor of Dermatology at Missouri University School of Medicine. She is also Chief of the VA Medical Center affiliated with that institution. Dr. Fernandez, thank you very much for making time for us.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I have been a longtime listener of Dialogues in Dermatology since I was a resident, so it is a pleasure to be here.
1: Ring endorsement. You've come full circle. Well, we are <laughs> we are interviewing you today because you led a very interesting session at this year's VMX on cutaneous dysesthesias. So, we're wondering what were some of the topics you covered at that session and how did you structure the session?
2: Yeah so the session was really structured as a follow up to the JAD CME that we did in 2015 and I really wanted to kind of circle back and relook at the literature and and do sort of an update on what's new in some of those diseases that I covered in that and also add a little bit more to some of the areas that I think now more of a cutaneous dysesthesia, such as idiopathic anal general paritis and also vulvodynia. So we didn't really cover those in great details in that CME review. And so I really wanted to give those kind of their, their shining moment here.
1: Right. Great. So kind of an update on some things, some things you thought would be really clinically relevant. How did you structure the session? Was it a series of speakers, a panel? What sort of structure did you put on it?
2: Yeah, so we have three speakers. Myself, I did sort of the uh, literature review on an update on the generic cutaneous dysesthesia. So we talked about scalp right. dysesthesia, brachial and, and notalgia parasthetica specifically in, in my session. And then I also had Dr. Kathleen Long talk about idiopathic anogenital paritis. Um, and then Dr. Nora Shemway talked about vulvodynia and really what, what dermatologists should know and what our focus should be. Where's our role in treating vulvodynia, basically?
1: Right. Super important. Very clinically relevant. And I'm sure it's challenging to think about maybe three or five take home points from the session. But were there uh, several particularly potentially practice changing sort of pearls that the speakers or you shared with the audience?
2: Well, a few things that I've been doing in my clinic since we did this and, and we started researching this are thinking more about physical treatments for some of the neurocutaneous dysesthesia. So there's an article we reviewed out of Australia in doing these neck strengthening and neck muscle lengthening exercises for scalp dysesthesias. And, and I have found this. Particularly useful for my either frail elderly patients, patients where they already have just a tremendous number of medications, and and even low dose gabapentin could maybe cause them some problems, or patients who have a lot of comorbidities and are really unable to take some of those medications that we more traditionally use to treat neuropathic dysesthesia. So so that's been practice changing for me personally. I also think that consideration of lumbosacral pathology for idiopathic anal genital pruritus is important. And in my clinic, what we do is once we've truly figured out that it's idiopathic, right? So there's not an infectious or a real, real, um, dermatitis causing it, then we go back through and do a pretty good chart review to see if we can come up with any, you know, is there imaging or other appointments that would suggest lumbosacral pathology? And if not, if the patients, you can either do a trial of low-dose gabapentin or even consider imaging and referral to someone to treat lumbosacral pathology. The red scrotum syndrome is something that I see quite often in my practice at the VA and, and really, recognizing what that is. It's not necessarily a dysesthesia, but it's not really a dermatitis. It's more maybe a rosacea variant, right? So Mm -hmm. those patients have have typically been on topical steroids for a long time. This morning I had a gentleman who'd been on topical steroids for, you know, four or five months. And so the first thing in treating red scrotum syndrome is – Stopping the topical steroid. In uh, a lot of cases, topical beta blockers. So Timolol gel can work well for those patients. Even low-dose Corig or or, or Carvedolol can work. And then we use actually uh, tacrolimus ointment for a lot of these patients as well. And then vulvodynia, just kind of keeping that on your radar, really. And so anytime you're treating a patient that has vulvar disease, simply doing a review of systems to ask them about pain can be very helpful. Do they have pain with intercourse? Are they having vulvar pain? vaginal pain, because early referral to a a pelvic floor physical therapist can be very helpful in these patients and life-changing.
1: That's really fascinating stuff. So just to think about kind of Summarizing some of those great pearls, so maybe it's sort of a physical therapy approach, which is a really interesting idea for patients with scalp disthesia and maybe also vulvodynia. So maybe kind of involving physical therapy, you know, as a collaborator in care of these patients. Also like the idea of thinking about underlying lumbar sacral pathology in patients who may have paritis or dysesthesia in that region, so maybe thinking about imaging in those patients and then patients with red scrotum syndrome, what is that disease really? Interesting to think of it like a rosacea variant and how important it would be to avoid topical steroids in that context, thinking about topical beta blockers and uh, calcineurin inhibitors. Really interesting stuff. Dr. Fernandez, was there anything that led to a kind of extended discussion, something controversial, great questions from the audience or between speakers that arose in the session?
2: Yeah, some, some great questions. You know, perianal pruritus, sort of that subset of idiopathic anal genital paritis that can be difficult to treat sometimes. A discussion came up around that, and, and we talked about the importance of asking patients about both constitutional and specific gastrointestinal review of systems, because there can be an association of with colon cancer in patients with perianal paritis. So, you know, asking about that and then making sure they're up to date on their screening colonoscopy. We did sort of have just a discussion about a patient walks in off the street and has a neurocutaneous dysesthesia. So, so what, what is my general treatment algorithm? And and so a lot of times I will start with gabapentin. I like I said, I am using more of the physical treatment approach, and we've talked about it for scalp dysesthesias, but there is some literature for physical therapy for notalgia parasthetica and brachial radioparitis as well. But other than that just low, low-dose gabapentin is really what I'm doing, right? So usually with, uh, particularly with burning scalp syndrome or scalp dysesthesia, I can get that under control in a lot of patients with just 100 milligrams TID of gabapentin. So using very, very low doses. In patients who that is not effective or patients who have had issues being on gabapentin before, sometimes I do use low-dose amitriptyline. In the discussion, some of the audience was bringing up nortriptyline. There's really not better evidence for nortriptyline, but, but some people think they've had better results with that. And then when, or when not to use pregabalin? Personally, it's not my favorite to use. I try to avoid it if at all possible, but those were some of the discussion points that we had that I thought were more interesting.
1: Yeah, super interesting. So sort of when to be thinking about a kind of perineoplastic itch in the genital area. Important to think about GI review of systems and colon cancer screening in that population. low gabapentin typically used. I think that's a great choice, certainly something I go to in my practice as well and hopefully can get away with 100 TID. That's great. Amitriptyline, nortriptyline, maybe pregabalin, not as readily used in this group. Well, thank you, Dr. Fernandez. Super interesting session and appreciate you sharing your pearls with us.
2: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: For our next installment of Best of VMX, we have Dr. Susan Winkle. Dr. Winkle is a Mohs surgeon and renowned cosmetic dermatologist with a private practice in the Bradenton, Florida area. She is also affiliate clinical professor of dermatology at the University of South Florida. For her session at VMX, she did a live demonstration, soft tissue augmentation and neuromodulators with simultaneous cadaver prosection and live patient injections. Dr. Winkle, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, it's great to have you. I know there was unique challenges associated with a session like this at the VMX. Give us a sense of how the session was structured and what were some of the main topics that you covered.
3: All righty. Well, first of all, let me give credit to the AAD staff because this was not an easy task. Trying to coordinate Dr. Sebastian Cotofano, who was our world-renowned anatomist, describing the anatomy along with the injection that we were doing and demonstrating. Now, the best part about being virtual is for one of the first times we could have people injecting from around the world. Wow. We had Dr. Benji Dillon from London and he was injecting the upper face. Dr. Hassan Galadari, who is also quite world-renowned and has spoken everywhere, He injected more the mid face, and Dr. Mary Lupo addressed the lower face. She practices in New Orleans. And the nice thing was we really looked at it from a multicultural, as well as that global approach, and never before could we have them injecting on our podium because they don't have a US license. Of course, Dr. Lupo does, but our other two injectors. And I think that this was a very unique opportunity, which we were able to optimize. The challenging part, of course, were the time zones. It was difficult for us to ever have a conference call together to discuss what we were doing. And then we had to get Dr. Cotofano to get all their videos that they injected so he could do the cadaver dissection. It, It was logistically quite challenging. But again, the AAD staff worked long hours helping us do and put this all together. I was quite proud of the accomplishment they did.
1: Well, as always, credit goes to the staff. You're absolutely right. Interestingly, I mean, as is many things that have happened during COVID and resulting from COVID, what looks like a kind of unique barrier becomes this cool opportunity to draw on people from all around the globe. You mentioned a kind of approach for maybe taking different anatomical units of the face and with experts Associated with those units. Was that sort of the way that the topics were structured for the session?
3: Yes, I I really felt like that if we focused on each area then these experts could Really show the different variables in terms of injection techniques the temple for instance whether you use a cannula Do you do it, a needle down to bone? And the nice thing was is while watching that injection being performed Professor Cordovano was actually demonstrating the dissection. And the important thing was really to focus on safety, because safety of injection technique is, is really, we want to do no harm. We want to help our patients and make them look and feel better, but we also want to do it safely. And this way we could demonstrate the depth of the vessels, the important vessels to avoid, Techniques you might consider for instance in using a cannula and which cannula to use and also the fact that we have 15 Products in our cupboard now to inject so we've come a long way since 2004 when Restylane came to market
1: Right fascinating. So all the while while you had your experts injecting from around the globe You also had somebody discussing you know, anatomy and danger zones and safety implications and so forth. Fascinating stuff. So a focus on safety in particular, which is always really important. Were there three, four, five pearls that maybe fell out of the session that you feel like really had a potential to change practice for for listeners?
3: I really do think in terms of knowing what product to choose in which location. Because as I mentioned, we have 15 fillers. And they are not all created equally, and some of them have different characteristics. So what type of filler you might use for the tear trough, for instance, and the technique of addressing it with a cannula safely, anterior the medial cheek, so you avoid, for instance, the angular artery or areas of concern. And I, I also think the way Dr. Lupo injected along, the mandible was quite nicely done. And I, I think that choosing products, choosing technique, and understanding the anatomy to optimize safety for the patient. It was really kind of the nuts and bolts of what this session was able to share.
1: Fascinating. So the idea here is you know, not all products and anatomical locations are created equal. We really have to kind of optimize a particular product for a particular location. Could you maybe give an example of, of the way in which that might be optimized?
3: Yes. For instance, if you look at Voluma, it's a very big product, it's a very gets a lot of lift, so you can use that out on the cheekbone, whereas you come to the anterior medial cheek, you want to use something that's not quite as robust, choose a product that isn't quite as stiff and doesn't have as much swelling. Right. Also, we have a whole new line of products which were demonstrated, the RHA 2, 3, and 4, which are from Teoxane, distributed by Revance, and those products, again, have some variability. Two is used in an area where you want something much thinner and less robust, whereas three, a little stiffer, stronger, and four, RHA-4, was beautifully demonstrated that you can inject it both deeply and superficially very effectively. Hmm. So I think that our challenge these days is understanding whether you want to use a needle or a cannula, what are you most comfortable with? Uh, If you're going to face a fine line, you might be forced to use a needle, whereas if you're going to do something globally over the face, it works quite nicely with the cannula. I think that, again, differentiating all these different products and knowing what's in your cupboard really can give the patient the best outcome.
1: Right, great. So so some variability based upon... Sort of volume of the product that you're using and where you're using it, also the method of delivery. And you touched upon this a little bit already, Dr. Winkle, but were there any kind of controversial topics you felt were covered, great questions that came from the audience, or maybe discussion points between speakers that you felt like listeners might be interested in?
3: Yes, I think that the fact of whether or not in the anterior medial cheek, for instance, are you comfortable with the A Needle there with those vessels. So that was somewhat Mm. of a discussion a discussion on should you stop anticoagulants? Mm. Those sorts of things are very important because first and foremost we're physicians and we have to take good medical histories and know what the patient is taking I, I felt like we addressed a wide variety of topics and Our speakers were very clear. It was very easy to follow so All in all, I think that AAD should be very proud we were able to do this in a virtual fashion.
1: Yeah, great. And I think clearly this is an opportunity for future engagement, perhaps modeling after your session, which was so great. Was there any discussion of sort of COVID vaccine related considerations with filler products? This is something that's been something of a hot topic in the lay press. Did that come up among the audience or speakers?
3: Yes, we weren't able to address all the questions for time and we did get some emails following the course and people did ask that if we were concerned about patients having the COVID vaccine and I have to say quite frankly even though we know there were three cases of some swelling with the Moderna vaccine in the original studies, it really has not been as concerning as as initially thought and of course then there's the question of safety you know when in the beginning when we were doing these things and patients weren't vaccinated and physicians were coming very close and we have to take the patient's mask down. And, you know, we've had certainly some challenges, but I would say we reassured everyone that thank goodness the world is becoming vaccinated and hopefully we will have less of this in our offices to worry about.
1: For sure. And I think there's just nothing replacing the experience of people who are you know, really dealing with this problem and, and high volumes of patients, et cetera, to really sort of add credence or maybe, you know, refute some of the concerns that are out there in the lay press. Well, Dr. Winkle, thank you so much. Appreciate your okay. input and contribution to the virtual meeting, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in.
3: Great. I hope everyone uh, has an opportunity to view
1: it. Thank you. Up next on this special edition of Dialogues, Best of VMX, we have a review of a symposium on acne and rosacea. To talk about this session with us, we have Dr. Linda Steingold. Dr. Steingold is Director of Dermatology Clinical Research and a Division Head of Dermatology at Henry Fourth Health System. Dr. Steingold, thank you so much for having a dialogue with us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Dr. Steingold, your session was one of the best attended at the VMX, and the first question would be, what is something new about pathophysiology of acne or that you thought would be interesting for listeners?
0: Well, it seems like we're learning more and more about the pathophysiology and pathogenesis of acne and rosacea. One interesting tidbit that came out of uh, one of the first lectures was that it's probably not the amount of Cutibacterium bacterium acnes that's important in the pathogenesis of acne, but mm. probably the strain. So there are some strains that might promote health and others that probably promote disease. And we also know that there are some genetic polymorphisms in genes relating to IGF-1 and hair follicle development. And this also, it turns out, might be associated with acne. So a lot of new learning going on.
1: Fascinating. So not just sort of amount of bacteria, but type of bacteria, and then some of the markers that might be associated with more inflammatory lesions. Fascinating stuff. And, you know, on the topic of bacteria, we're always interested in new... Antibiotics that might be used and effective for clinicians for rosacea and acne. What was sort of new in the realm of antibiotics in the session?
0: Yeah, antibiotics is really a hot topic. And some important facts that came out are, first of all, some basics, such as when you use a topical antibiotic like erythromycin or clindamycin and you don't use it concomitantly with a benzoyl peroxide, basically we can see the induction of resistant bacteria, not only on the skin, but also in remote sites, including the nares. So it's always important, especially with a topical, to use a benzoyl peroxide, if possible, concomitantly. Then we also have some new topics as well, and some new products. The first is we have a topical minocycline foam. And what's interesting about that, I just said, you know, you want to make sure you use benzoyl peroxide to make sure we don't uh, get resistant organisms. But what's interesting about the topical minocycline foam is that we get really high concentrations in the skin. And it appears that the concentrations are so high, it might be actually protective against the emergence of resistant organisms. So Hmm. that's something new and different.
1: Fascinating. So... Just a reminder to all of us that really topical antibiotic monotherapy, at least the traditional agents, really have a role in causing resistance locally and even remote from the sites of application. That's really interesting. So we really need to focus on combining with benzoyl peroxide. And then maybe some of the newer products, particularly the topical minocycline foam, which is really exciting, may achieve high enough levels of concentration at the site of treatment that may actually fight against resistance, which is so important in our field. Okay, super interesting stuff there. Okay, so we've talked about topical antibiotics. What about new oral antibiotics in the treatment armamentarium for acne and rosacea?
0: Yeah, that's where it's really exciting as well. You know, traditionally, we've used the tetracycline family because we know that these drugs are both um, antibacterial as well as anti-inflammatory. Um, right. We get some collateral damage when we use these these antibiotics that have a broader spectrum. We actually have a, a newer antibiotic called seracycline that was actually developed particularly for acne. Mm-hmm. And it has a bacterial profile that actually doesn't seem to have activity against gram negatives or anaerobic bacteria. And what's good about that is we don't see the the gut side effects. So the yeast infections, we also know that, you know, so it's more targeted specifically for kidney bacterium acnes. We also know that this drug, at least in animal studies, doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, so we mm. see much less CNS side effects as well.
1: That's great. I mean, obviously, some of the things that typically limit use of the tetracycline class might be beneficial in the in the setting of this new narrower spectrum, tetracycline, in that there may not be GI upset and less propensity toward yeast infection crossing the blood-brain barrier. That's really exciting as well. What about new treatments in acne from the perspective of hormonal treatment? Uh, what's new there?
0: Yeah, that's such an exciting area as well. And we have to yeah. remember all acne is hormonal acne. So it, hormones right. play a role in both men and women. And one of the things we haven't been able to do topically is actually have any type of an anti-androgen drug. And that's, that's now changed because we have a new topical agent called clascorderone. And it is an anti-androgen And it actually is effective in both men and women. And we don't see systemic absorption significantly. So we can use it basically for any patient who has acne. So that's kind of exciting to have a new mechanism of action.
1: Yeah, particularly one that might be helpful for men as well. How do you sort of envision inserting that into an acne regimen for a patient?
0: Yeah, you know, what's nice about this is it's a different mechanism of action. So I don't necessarily see this as a standalone drug but I certainly see it used in combination pretty much with any other treatment regimen as something to add in and give the the clearance that extra boost.
1: Fantastic, all right, so new stuff from a topical and oral perspective, that's really exciting. What about some populations that might be, in some cases, challenging to treat, particularly like skin of color, acne and skin of color, what were some pearls from the session about that population?
0: Yeah, it's really important to remember that patients who have skin of color are upset not only in their acne, but they're also upset about their dyspigmentation. Right. There were a few pearls on how to try to get this under control. First, to remember that 20% azelaic acid is good not only at reducing the acne lesions, but also helpful in reducing the post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation in patients with skin of color. And then there was also a suggestion when we look at chemical peels that a nice way of doing a peel in patients with skin of color is to do a sequential peel. And the recommendation was to combine salicylic acid and mandelic acid sequentially. And that treats, again, both the acne as well as the dispigmentation. So a nice pearl to take off
1: I love that. Could you maybe describe in a little more detail for listeners who may not be familiar with the concept of sequential peeling, sort of one than the other? How would you sort of do that in in a clinical context?
0: As was recommended by Dr. Desai, it really is sequential. So they do one peel and then in that same session would apply the second peel right on top.
1: Okay, great. Well, obviously, a huge problem in patients susceptible to dyspigmentation. So a nice pearl about use of azelaic acid and then maybe this idea of sequential peeling also to help with pigmentary problems. Obviously, this was a huge session, Linda, and I, I know a lot of pearls came from it. Anything else that you feel like might be worthy of sharing with the listeners for dialogues?
0: So just a final pearl, going back to kind of the basics and, and looking at isotretinoin. We had a lot of chat among us about you know, when do we stop, what's appropriate, do you just, do you just calculate out the, the full course and say that they're finished? And I think the consensus really is among pretty much everybody on the panel was, you treat until the patient is clear and then you treat for an additional one to two months after clearance, really to make sure that that acne doesn't relapse. Hmm. So a lot of us aren't so strict about the exact amount, we know we're gonna get that amount, but we're, we're pretty flexible about going longer because somebody's still breaking out in their final month and they're still just got over the last few papules. Don't stop. Go another month or two. Make sure they're completely clear. You really will potentially decrease the chance that that this patient is going to relapse. And again, if you're going to use a generic isotretinoin make sure they're using it with a fatty meal, we Mm. have significantly reduced absorption. There are some other formulations that you can take on an empty stomach, but if they're using a generic and they don't take it with a high fat meal, they are not absorbing what you think they're getting.
1: Yeah, that's a great pearl. And I often find a lot of variation in how patients take the drug. So I think that's important to remind patients. I think also just using a somewhat arbitrary number as a target doesn't always make sense to patients either. So I think this approach of sort of treating until clear and then some is something that we would, you know, we would find satisfactory to patients as well. That's a great pearl as well. Well, thank you, Linda, for sharing your pearls with us and for leading a great session at VMX. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in.
0: Thanks to everybody for listening, and thanks for having me.
1: For our last installment of Best of VMX, we have someone who really needs no introduction, Dr. Amy Paller. Dr. Paller is Chair of the Department of Dermatology and Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. Dr. Paller directed the atopic dermatitis session at the VMX this year. Dr. Paller, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Great. Well, you know, obviously an unusual year for the meeting, and the VMX did a wonderful job Transitioning to a virtual platform. For the atopic dermatitis session, what were some of the main topics covered and how did you end up structuring the session?
3: We
4: basically had a session that was just as if we were going to be there in person. Everyone agreed to be part of this and we had a range of topics by the top experts in the field from epidemiology to comorbidities to topical medications to systemic medications to all about the barrier, all about the immune system, and then a special segment as well on pediatrics and where we are with systemics.
1: Fantastic. So attempting to kind of mimic the in-person experience, but we're able to draw upon topics ranging from epidemiology, comorbidities, treatment, barrier, all sorts of things. That sounds great. What were some of the sort of pearls that fell out of the session, maybe ones that might change practice for listeners?
3: Well,
4: there was so much, as you can imagine, that was in this session. Of course. Uh, I was intrigued about the discussion about older individuals with atopic dermatitis Mm -hmm. and that we're seeing more in the 65-year and older age group Mm -hmm. who truly have atopic dermatitis, although, of course, the caveat that one must always think about other alternatives and and look carefully for those. I think that the the bottom line is our better understanding of what's going on with atopic dermatitis. For example, when we're thinking about barrier, we have to get away from just thinking about the lipids and the proteins. It's really having a deficiency in any of these that increases your susceptibility to stress responses from the right. epidermis and having a more reactive environment. It's not just stimulating those immune cells there, especially the dendritic cells, but the fact that our keratinocytes are so reactive, producing these alarmins and more non-spec- non-specific responses as well that are known then to trigger the type two immunity. So a, a little bit of a different concept about the role of the, uh, the keratinocyte itself Of course, there's been so much work done on uh, the immune system and all eyes on type 2 immunity, but of course, there are many other moving parts in there, and some of the newer drugs are actually looking to uh, ways outside of type 2 influence atopic dermatitis. I think we had a lot of discussion about lowering the threshold. Of course, for years, we've had immunosuppressants. A lot of people haven't come forward to even try these who need them whether we're talking about adults or whether we're talking about children, because of the fact that they have dangers. There's been increasing recognition that atopic dermatitis is a systemic disease, whether we're looking at children all the way through adults with the differences that we've seen in the skin immunophenotypes, in the blood immunophenotypes in these ages, they all have systemic immune activation and, and that means that we really do need to think about using systemic agents for many of these patients who have especially moderate to severe disease with a greater risk of systemic immune activation. Uh, we talked, of course, a lot about the different drugs. Dupilumab's out there. It has revolutionized our therapy. We had some discussion about how long do you need to stay on it? What happens if you try to get off of it? And I think most of us are saying at least a year of good control, maybe two. But the discussion did lean towards the fact that it's really hard to get adults off of dupilumab. There's probably no opportunity with that to reset their immune system, that we can try to get them from every two weeks maybe to every three weeks, but so many of them already intermittently need every one week it's a little bit of a different story. We've had some children that we are able, able to taper down to at least less use and some even to get off for a while. Uh, we had discussion about prevention. The two studies that came out just in Brown in the last year that looked at large populations to verify what was seen and it's so exciting in smaller studies suggesting that barrier repair through topical emollients in the first weeks of life and thereafter uh, might reduce the risk of atopic dermatitis were so disappointing. Both (laughs) the uh, Bent AD all study and the BEEP study showed no evidence that Hmm. the use of these emollients on a regular basis several times a week made any difference in the risk of developing atopic dermatitis. But I do want to mention in our discussion. We also talked about how there were more studies ongoing, and there were so many problems that people should recognize that were limitations to these studies. In one, just cream on the face. In another, there were a lot of placebo patients who ended up using moisturizers, and problems with compliance. And finally, um, a lot of discussion about jacks. Uh, we have three jacks coming forward, and and how do we distinguish among them? Is the safety profile of lower dosing going to lead us to use more of that? Is the safety profile that looks so good with the low doses of baricitinib going to put that out there at all? Are we going to largely be focusing on apatacitinib and the abracitinib, which really look to be much more efficacious? What do all of these various side effects mean practically in real life? And will we, once these come on the market, find out what we don't wanna find out, that malignancy may occur, or that infections are greater than we see right now, or that there could be embolic phenomenon. The beauty is we've not seen this in any of the studies right now with doses that might be used. Uh, finally, I'll just mention uh, what came out in our discussion, not really in the presentations but we can't not talk about COVID. So COVID-19, what's the story? And everybody's experience has been that there's been no increased risk with the use, of dupilumab, and in fact, uh, one of our participants, Emma gutman yavsky who's doing an NIH-funded study right now on more than a thousand patients, uh, actually found some evidence to suggest a lower risk of those who are on dupilumab than even those who are on topical therapies.
1: That's fascinating, Dr. Power. I mean, on the sort of topic of controversial or late-breaking stuff related to atopic dermatitis, were there any other sources of extended discussion between speakers, say, or between virtual audience members and speakers?
4: Well, the virtual audience members asked questions. <laughs> we
1: didn't, right. we, it wasn't
4: live. <laughs> <Got> it. <laughs> so it couldn't be very extended, But I, but some of the topics that I just mentioned to you no. Uh, of course, came from that. The conjunctivitis with dupilumab was a favorite question. And the group talked about experiences. Of course, we know that this has not been demonstrated except in the atopic dermatitis studies with dupilumab, not with the asthma studies or other atopic disorders in which dupilumab has been used, suggesting a Mm. barrier issue. And indeed, we know that there is a reduction in goblet cells and their production of mucin. And so many of the participants were talking about the use of preservative free moisturizers to the eye, especially early on. It does appear that the risk of conjunctivitis is particularly in the first uh, months of treatment much more so than later on. We talked about, is there a signal with the new IL-13 inhibitors? And although we really don't have full details yet, it really looks like they also can cause conjunctivitis from what we've seen so far. So it's probably an effect of the interleukin-13.
1: Fascinating stuff, Dr. Peller. So it seems like you covered a broad range of things, everything from sort of epidemiology of atopic dermatitis, particularly in older patients, pathophysiology and new understandings, particularly about the role of the keratinocyte. Maybe this is not just a type 2 disease after all. Questions about whether we should lower threshold for systemic therapy, both because maybe we have safer safer therapies available to us, and then this idea of atopic dermatitis as a systemic disease, uh, you know, we have questions about duration of, of therapy for systemic agents, particularly dupilumab, and whether there might be a difference between you know the range for younger patients versus older patients. Uh, we have some. Questions about prevention that people are asking now, and particularly the role of emollients earlier in life, maybe some disappointing results, but limited. And then, of course, JAK inhibitors. What is the right dose? What is the risk associated with them? Questions about COVID-19 and risk associated with dupilumab. Seems as though there is a risk and maybe potentially a protective effect. Very interesting stuff there. And then of course conjunctivitis. And when it enters the picture in treatment with dupilumab and some of the newer IL thirteen agents. Well, Dr. Power, thank you so much for recounting what sounded like a very active and interesting session. Thanks also to our listeners for tuning in. Thanks for asking. To learn more about AAD educational opportunities and upcoming events, visit www.aad.org.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts, We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to
2: dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.